G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Unfortunately, Ben Along is once again away this week, but he has promised that he will look to join us in the next couple of weeks. Today is Tuesday the 2nd of May and this week's topics are the small modular reactor plan for little power station and the Medicare overhaul. Then we'll jump straight into this week in Australian history and finish off as always with a 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, Adit, how are you today? I'm traveling all right, DK. It's been a, a reasonably uneventful week. Um, I can smell my pork belly in the, the background. I'm, I'm actually having ribeye tonight. To, as view, regular oh. listeners would know, it's t- Tuesday night and Tuesday night is meat night. So tonight I'm having some well-aged ribeye. I went into the butcher and my usual question when I'm having a steak is T-bone or ribeye? He said, grab the ribeye. It's been aged very nicely. So that's delicious. But because I'm on a, a keto-type diet, um, I have to force myself to have uh, pork belly for breakfast and other, uh, <laughs> and other meals. So I've also got the qu- pork belly cooking, and it's been, <laughs> it's been doing it's a slow cook in the it's oven. Terrible. Yeah, it's, it sounds yeah. terrible. Oh, it's delicious. I'm having, having a little salivate thinking about it. Now, well, I can smell it coming through to the, uh, the, the room. But look... <laughs> It's been a reasonably uneventful week. I've uh, just been out in the garden doing some mulching and gardening. Had to fix the bloody right on mower. I was looking looking to my right when I should have been looking to my left and ran into a bloody pole. So had to uh, <laughs> what well, chatterboat? What what chatterboat? <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, had to had to do a little bit of a um, little bit of mending on on that one and. Uh, Having a little bit of play with some watercolor paints, which I I picked oh. up and just amusing myself with with that. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been a, a it's it's been a reasonably straightforward week. What about you? How have things been going your end? Um, good. Queensland had the, the uh, Labor Day holiday uh, yesterday. Um, so we had, uh, we actually had all the in-laws come around to our house, uh, which was stressful. My, my father-in-law is, he's a good bloke, uh, but he is very judgmental about everything basically. (laughs) Um, so he can be quite hard to please, um, and just, he just criticizes, he's just grumpy old man basically. Um, but but uh, once once I sort of calm him down, get a couple of beers under his belt, you know, oh. then he's then he's then he's a great great person to be around, sort of thing. So um, you just sort of got to push through the first forty five minutes of him being around, sort of thing. So it doesn't come around often, <laughs> probably only once once a year. Um, now, so, because it's a public holiday, or because it um, it happens to be Labor Day, it just it was. It was just a coincidence. He 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 rang uh, on I think it was Saturday and just said, "What are you doing on Monday?" Because it's a day off. And uh, I said, "Oh, I don't know. I, I just 
plan to sort of plot around the house and catch up on some some yard work and you know all the usual crap and he said we'll come over for lunch if you want and i was like oh okay um (laughs) so it just sort of worked out that's an interesting interesting way to phrase it we'll come (laughs) over for lunch if you want i mean how do you answer that Exactly. I mean, he said, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come over. We, we, we got nothing on. So, and I was like, okay, we'll, we'll better make a bit of a day of it. Uh, and we invited some other people as well. Um, and no, look, it was a good day. Um, I definitely drank too much rum by the end of the day. Uh, I'll Did you blame, have a couple of, uh, go- what was it? What was the exact one? The uh, gun, sh- gun, gun breakfast. Shop. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have some I, gunshot breakfast in preparation? <laughs> I definitely thought about it, but I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't sure that I needed the caffeine as well on top of everything. So, um, no. But it, it was. It was. It worked out all right. You know. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, can empathise. You know, sometimes in-laws uh, just. You know, they just. That's just who they are. <laughs> um, a bit hard to please sometimes. So, anyway. Oh. Let's kick off. Uh, this last this last week on the twenty eighth of April, two thousand and twenty three, at approximately ten thirty a.m., the very last turbine at the little power station in the Hunter Valley powered down for the last time, ending fifty two years of power generation at the coal fired power station. Realistically. The station was probably about 20 years past its use-by date, but it had powered on through that time up until today. That pun was completely intended. <laughs> uh, AGL Chief Executive Damien Nix said that it, it was an emotional day for everybody there. The, he And I quote, There's a lot of reflection here. There is a lot of people that have been here for many, many years, including one Steve Lansbury, who had been working as an operator of the station for 44 years and was there on the final day. And he helped power down the, the unit. And now, of course, the decommissioning work has to begin. Brad Williams, AGL's program director of site transition, said it was a unique opportunity. And I quote, there's a fantastic infrastructure at the site from road, rail, water, and a fantastically skilled workforce that live locally. Currently, the plan for the site is to install a 500 megawatt battery. But the Nationals party leader, David Littleproud, has another plan in mind. He's proposing creating a small-scale nuclear power plant on the site. And I quote, It's time to have a constructive, honest, and mature conversation about the long-term solutions, such as emerging small modular nuclear reactors, Mr. Littleproud said. We can target zero emissions and have clean, reliable energy while still being able to afford power and keep warm in the winter. Federal National Member for Lynn, Dr. David Gillespie, said Little was an ideal uh, location for small modular reactor. And I quote, This site plugs straight into the existing power grid, eliminating the need, as Labor's plan does, to build a whole new grid which includes tens of thousands of kilometres of new power lines. 
They will also generate carbon-free clean energy and provide New South Wales and Australia with affordable and reliable 24-7 baseload power. Hunter, the Hunter Valley-based Nationals Senator Ross Cattle said nuclear was often left out of the clean energy conversation despite it being the second largest source of low-carbon electricity in the world, of course, behind hydropower. The Achilles heel of wind and solar is the provision of adequate storage at a reasonable cost of power not needed during the middle of the day, but needed when the sun is not shining and or the wind is not blowing, Senator Cattle said. So, this is all well and good, but what is the capital cost of a nuclear small modular reactor? According to the CSIRO's GenCost 2021 projections, its estimated capital costs are around $7,700 per kilowatt. By contrast, large-scale solar uh, installations were around $1,400 per kilowatt. But of course, solar requires battery storage, as the Senator just pointed out. So we would need to add on an additional $1,300 per kilowatt, including installation for solar storage. These are as of 2021's dollars. Realistically, what we so need... They're, say, they're saying that, uh, that that extra cost is the the, the battery cost for the, the, the solar. Exactly. Yeah, the, okay. the battery. Uh, and there's lots of different battery technologies, but... Uh, um, from the CSIRO's GenCost report, uh, that was was their sort of dollar figure per kilowatt hour uh, was yep. $1,300 uh, for battery or, or storage, they call it. Um, realistically, what we need is large-scale uptake of small modular reactors for manufacturers to reduce the costs and uh, that, of course, come with large-scale manufacturing. If we can order like multiple small modular reactors at once or in conjunction, say, with another country, uh, the large capital cost of these technologies will drop. So we can expect that $7,700 per kilowatt to come down significantly if we can get critical mass into manufacturing because there is a number of companies that do do manufacture and have designed uh, small modular reactors. The problem Really, the only massive, the major problem with these is that most nuclear power plants are designed and built uh, for their specific application at that site. They're not. Yeah, they, they're, they, they're, bes they're bespoke. Ex exactly. So, and because they're bespoke and because they're all sort of unique, uh, that obviously comes with a huge price tag because everything has to be designed specifically for that area. That's kind of where the small modular reactor technology, in theory, comes is better because they're all basically assembled and designed in a, in a manufacturing facility. They get to site and you just build the infrastructure around it. Yeah, it's, so a, it's it, essentially production line. Yeah, exactly. However, it they still aren't that cheap. And I think where there's I think there's definitely an opportunity here. Um there is another site in New South Wales and I 
should have written it down, but I didn't. Uh, that's in a very similar situation where it's a very old cold fire power plant that's going to be shut down, I think, in the next two years. So there's an opportunity here where we've got two, and, and these sites are perfect because of the infrastructure that's already there. Uh, Little's actually perfect as well because it's right next to a massive lake, which we need water for cooling for, for the small wide reactors. Uh, well, at least for a lot of them. Um, and of course, they've got all the infrastructure, all the grid, everything's there, roads, access, the whole lot. Plus, you can't uh, discount the local area and of course, the local infrastructure around providing power, including, you know, staff and uh other yep. industries yep. that are around there as well so i'm i really like this uh plan but what i don't like is the realistically the only information i could find about this was a couple of news stories that were basically repeating the same uh the exact same article uh and the nationals the National Party website. So it, it seems to me like they're really making noise from a political point of view as opposed to like they're, they're standing there in opposition to Labor's plan as opposed to really having a proper plan for this. As far as I'm aware, they haven't done any any of the groundwork. I don't even believe they've spoken to AGL who owns the site um about this proposal or anything like that so i just felt like this was more for um you know the the (laughs) political capital than than an actual plan you know it makes a good headline and that's why we're talking about it but i would actually like to see an actual real uh plan for this because at the moment based on the csiro's report their gen cost report which i actually read it's huge it's a couple hundred pages um and it's really really detailed and, and it goes into a lot of stuff yeah and and if you wow good effort <laughs> thanks um if you look our fans cannot say we're not thorough uh if you go through that report, the the you know the the nuclear small modular reactor, it it doesn't make sense because of the costs. Um, but the reality is that if we can, if we're not dealing this on a single basis, but we've negotiated a contract for several of these, you know we can bring that cost down significantly. Or like I said, if we if we can say with another country, hey. You know, we need to buy a bunch of these, um, or, or even you know, several countries. Um, we go to to Rolls Royce or, or Lockheed Martin or someone and say, we want a bunch of these. We want them by this time. This is where they're going. You know, how much can we? What's it going to cost? Um, we want a deal. I think that's the realistic way that this is only ever going to happen. Otherwise, it's always going to be a bit of a pipe dream because. The political capital, there's a little bit there, but it's not enough. Yeah, look, I tend to agree with that. It's it's uh, the 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 cost, the cost is definitely an easy argument against uh, nuclear reactors of any uh, size. Yeah, you know, the the small modular reactors uh, do tend to stack up well, but 
nuclear as a, a predominantly bespoke implementation doesn't really stack up against a lot of the other clean energies like like renewables. And I'd, I'd agree with you. That's a bit of an Achilles heel for it. Yeah, look, and I'm. This hurts me so much because I, I, I just love this idea. Um, I've I've always thought, you know, nuclear power is. It, it's always been pro- portrayed as this really scary boogeyman thing, and I get it, and I completely understand why. Um, obviously, we're you know referring to the infamous 1986 Chernobyl disaster, and then again uh, in Fukushima, I think it was 2000. 10, 2011, something like that. Um, but people sort of forget as well. Uh, a, a good example is uh, that was used in Germany to stop their nuclear program, basically de- dead in its tracks, and it was for political gain. Um, yep. And now we're seeing Germany building. Th- they have the largest coal mine in the whole world. Um, they're, they're burning coal right now because they shut their nuclear plant down. Uh, and of course, in a world with... <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, with a, with a world with climate change. Uh, yeah, it just makes no sense. And they did it for political reasons. So they, they shut... Yeah, so just to reiterate, they shut down their <laughs> nuclear plant to burn more coal is what happened. Um, because they don't have enough renewables. I think the original plan was that they were going to go, you know, completely renewable. Uh, however, of course, the it, technologies... It, it was. It didn't work, though. No, it didn't yeah, work you know, because... And, and, look, I, I'm, and you, you can tell me your, uh, your opinion as well on this. I would like to see us move away from dirty fossil fuels. I've got no issue with that. But to me, I put, I put nuclear uh, energy in with other clean energy like renewables and i think the look if you if if germany could have solved their problems 100 percent with renewables good luck to them if australia could if we can solve our energy needs uh just with renewables well that's that's great but the reality is that doesn't seem to be the case uh, that doesn't seem to be able to uh provide Current and projected future needs in the in the clean uh, in the clean energy space. So to to me, renewables is 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 really a no brainer. At the moment, with the cost, you've got to start pursuing the the cheap cheaper options. But as nuclear comes down more and more in cost, it has to be part of the mix if you're actually serious about climate change. I completely agree. And and I think what you've said right there is exactly right. It has to be part of the mix. There's no silver bullet here. There's a lot yep. of, you know, obviously solar power is very, very cheap today. But as we know, uh, well, I hope everyone knows that the sun goes down once every 12 hours. Um, once a day, we have nighttime. And of course, uh, you don't, you can't generate any solar power when it's nighttime. So, um, and of course, of course, from a from a domestic point of view, and I think 
people sort of forget this, is they just think about their personal power use, um, which sort of peaks, you know, that sort of seven, eight o'clock in the morning, and then it normally drops off throughout the day, and then it picks up sort of around dusk when the sun's going down. Um, I can tell you right now in my yeah, household, yeah. we are currently using the most power we use throughout the day right now at this time of night because we're cooking dinner, uh, we've got electric cooktops, uh, everyone's having showers. So traditionally, like our electric hot water heater would be kicking in. However, in my house, we've got a timer so it goes during the day because we actually have solar panels on our roof. So, yep. um, But I think it, you're right. It needs to be a mix of of bits and pieces and depending on where you are and what you've got uh in terms of what where a country is located uh can dictate how that's going to work in germany for example part of the problem was you know there's not a lot of there's not a lot of sun germany's not a famously sunny place so solar doesn't work particularly well uh, it's, it's not that it doesn't work. It just, it's, you know, efficiency is quite low. Um, they do have a, a fair amount of wind, uh, but they have lots and lots of coal. So, that's what they've been <laughs> been doing. And this is also, my dear listener, this is also what's been pushing up the diesel price over the last couple of months since Germany's pipeline with Russia has been destroyed at this point. Uh, but when that was by, cut by, off- By goodness, goodness knows who- <laughs> yeah, let's. We will not speculate on yes, that, but no, no, no. it's Keep going. the Nord Stream pipeline. The Nord Stream pipeline's gone, and if Germany needed to replace its energy requirements, so they've been purchasing a lot of diesel generators, and they've been purchasing a lot, a lot of diesel fuel, and pushing up the worldwide price of diesel. However, right next door in France. Uh, Similar climate, you know, a little bit warmer, especially in the southern areas where they do have quite a lot of solar. However, France has 70% of its electrical needs come from nuclear energy. Yeah. So, France, a massive country, a huge manufacturer, admittedly not as big as Germany, but 70% of their electrical requirements come from nuclear energy. France has never had a major nuclear disaster. So no. when people and look most, to that's that's the, that's the bottom line. Most of the um, you, you, I was going to jump in before, so I'm I'm jumping in now. When you had talked about uh, Chernobyl, Fukushima, uh, those are old technology. They're 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 essentially pre-computer age um, nuclear reactor designs, and. Yeah, that that doesn't make it any less horrible for what for what happened. However, when we're talking about nuclear nuclear energy now, we're talking about extremely safe generation three or generation three plus designs that have a spotless record. In fact, when you when you compare the safety record of of Gen three and Gen three plus nuclear energy to solar and wind it's actually safer than solar and wind but you know you you get to start to play with a little bit of statistics in there the bottom line is gen 3 and gen 3 plus have an impeccable safety record they do and i think as well it's worth talking about this the the sort of reactor technology we're talking about is very 
recent too. We're sort of talking in the last 15 years, but it's obviously based on technologies that have matured since the beginning of the nuclear age. So we're not talking about, you know, reactor designs that go back to the to the 60s and 70s. We're talking about brand new reactor designs that have been proven safe, uh, higher efficiencies, um, much, much lower risks. Um, also, you know, lower requirements for nuclear fuel and, and things like that. They're more efficient at burning fuel and blah, 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 blah. They're better in literally every way. Um, and the reality is as well, I guess for Australia at least, is the sort of reactor we're talking about here is similar in design to what a nuclear submarine uses. And so the nuclear submarine program, AUKUS, that we've talked about in the past, and I'm sure we'll talk about in the future as well as this uh, story sort of develops, um, we're about to have this technology and this industry start up effectively in Australia for the first time ever. And I think it's really important to remember that we're poised in such a great position to take advantage of mature, safe technologies uh, that aren't like the scare you know we're not we're not we don't have to demolish an existing industry and start fresh we can start fresh today with the best most cutting edge technology and we don't have that legacy of of older technology and stuff like that i think it's really also worth worth um saying that if you live anywhere near a coal-fired power plant your general health is severely impacted um, just by being around it. They are incredibly dangerous to live around. And so a lot of people, and the reason I say this is because a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of what, what we call NIMBYs, not in my backyard, uh, yeah. around yep. nuclear power. Um, but living near a nuclear power station is infinitely safer than living near a coal-fired power plant. Um, For sure. I don't have the specific details in front of me, but uh, I would urge you, if you are interested, to, to just uh, do a quick Google search on the health risks associated with living near a coal-fired power plant, um, and I think you'd be horrified at the uh, the impacts it can have on on your your health just just by living near it. You know, not necessarily working there, not necessarily being downwind, but the contamination of the local area is phenomenal. Also, it's radioactive. Coal's radioactive, so that's a problem too. Yeah, that's it. That's the other little sting in the tail. The the radioactivity of, of coal, and uh, I'm sure people will scream at me as I, I butcher my interpretation of it, but my understanding is that typically where coal is found, there's a number of... Um, slightly radioactive elements that when the coal is burnt and it's put into the stack it's it's concentrated and you do get a higher level of radioactivity in the stack that the um emissions are are passed through yeah that's my that's my understanding as well yeah. yeah yeah um as as a you know and they do generally try and capture a lot of that stuff but it's not mm. perfect. Um, and so, obviously, the CO2 isn't the only damaging thing that's going on with a coal-fired power plant. So, um, no. anyway, we could probably talk about this for uh, look, a very long time. Yep. 
and it'll come up again, and hopefully it'll come up again because hopefully uh, our bureaucrats will see the sense and start pushing Australia a little bit more towards uh, nuclear energy. You know, we we need in, in, in energy production, and I've said this on our our sub the R slash Australian sub. My opinion is we need energy production ten to forty times more than what we have. We have a small population, and energy leverages our strength. So I'm hoping that in the future we'll get to um, see a little bit more of pushing of this energy source, and that'll be a greater and greater part of the mix of renewables. And I think you and I seem to be in the same agree. Seem to be in agreement that having it as a mix in the clean energy production is a sensible way to go. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I, I actually think it will be... How I think this will play out is once the Orcas submarines are here, then this will be talked about a lot more seriously. I feel like once one happens, a lot more yeah. will happen. It'll just be... It's just... We've got to tip it over the line for the first, and once we've got one, then people will see it understand it see how it works see the benefits of it and then it will kind of go from there and before we know it who knows maybe we'll have 70 percent of our power generation from from nuclear as well but we'll see as we yeah, always look, say watch this space the story <laughs> will develop i'm sure as uh as you know and like i said as the orca submarines come online and and all the rest of it so Meanwhile, this week, the Prime Minister Albanese has signed off on a $2.2 billion in funding to springboard a major Medicare overhaul as he's agreed to almost halve the growth rate of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Medical groups have praised the $2.2 billion Medicare overhaul announced by the National Cabinet, but warned that there is more to do to fix the nation's ailing general practice and hospital systems. So this is a little bit of a callback to uh, our topic a couple of weeks ago about GP rates and things like that. Maybe Mm. the premiers and the prime minister himself have been listening to the podcast and realised they need to do something about this. So... The I National think it's Cabinet. Beyond doubt that they have been listening to the podcast. <laughs> uh, the National Cabinet committed uh, nearly 1.5 billion in new funding to overhaul Medicare as part of the 2.2 billion dollar health plan boost to boost the number of nurses, increase the after-hours care, and expand the roles of pharmacists and paramedics. The Prime Minister said that the 9th of May budget that's coming out next week, which we'll probably talk about at that point, mm. would include extra funding for to, to incentivize GPs to stay open later. So, again, if we call back to, to what we learned about how GPs get paid by Medicare today, they are limited on the number of patients they can see with, by the number of hours that they work. So, they're actually currently limited by 
the government's working hours. So now they're talking about, oh, well, maybe we should cut some of that red tape and open these up. So they also want to boost the, the number of nurses in the workforce. So pharmacists and workers would be encouraged to undertake what they call top of scope duties. So pharmacists and nurses will be asked to play a greater role to improve access to after hours care while a new blended funding model will be introduced as part of the biggest shakeup to Medicare in its 40 year history. Part of the reforms include the introduction of a new voluntary Medicare patient ID to better understand why people are turning up to emergency departments across the country. This comes as part of a new report from the Australian Medical Association found that the public health system is in its worst shape for more than 15 years. The annual report card found the emergency department and essential surgery waiting times have blown out and called for an overhaul of the national health reform agreement between the states and the federal government. But the Australian Medical Association President Professor Steve Robson said the May budget would be a real test for the Commonwealth. Not only does it need to deliver funding to support long-term reform of general practice, it must also deliver an immediate injection of funding into general practice to ensure it remains viable and that GP services are accessible and affordable. This $2.2 billion package of measures will address immediately immediate challenges in primary care, take pressure off the hospital system, and lay the foundations for long-term Medicare reform, Prime Minister Albanese has said. The National Cabinet is going to hold a special health reform-focused meeting later this year, so <laughs> watch this space. We'll find out <laughs> later this year. I feel like this is somewhat vague until we really know the specific details of the budget. Yeah, that's um, fair. While this package sounds really good at face value, the without knowing the specifics of how this is going to work, we don't really know if this is genuinely going to actually make a big difference, especially like if we're talking, you know, in your local area, as we saw when we did the GP thing a few weeks ago, there was a lot of clinics that don't bulk bill. There was a lot of clinics that don't take new patients. The yeah. average annual cost, I think, was over f almost $50 out-of-pocket expenses to the average person to go and see the GP. Is this actually going to make a difference to that? That's, that's the question I have. Um, hopefully, the answer is hopefully yes, but we're not going to know until probably later this year when we find out when the National Cabinet meets again and they, I'm sure, as you love to say, death by committee, <laughs> and they do a report and we find out once again what, what the deal is and what's going on. Yeah, look, that's that's the bit that uh, that bothers me a little bit, DK. I, I, I was reading the uh, bit where they said that the, uh, where are we? The... Where are we? The doctor, the, the uh, roles of uh, nurses and pharmacists is going to be expanded, which I thought made a lot of sense to me. And, and part of the reason I think it made a lot of sense to me, aside from the fact that just sheerly, purely reasoning it out, and because I happen to know a couple of pharmacists and a couple of nurses and know that they do a lot of study, they understand people. Yes. 
what stood out to what sort of stood out to me as an example was what Fred Hollows did with um, he, he he was an Australian a famous Australian who helped a lot of people with sight problems. He would go into different areas in uh, the Australian Aboriginal communities and many other communities over overseas. And he would, yeah, all all over the world, I think, yeah, all, yeah, all over the world. And yeah. he his his particular thing was restoring people's sights with easily preventable, um, easily preventable procedures that were actually sending people blind. And I'm I, I can't remember the name. I, I can't remember the name of the disease that he was uh, fixing or the ailment that he was fixing. However, he would specifically train people just in one niche area of how to fix this in people's eyes and something that required a highly qualified multi multi year skilled eye surgeons to do in the past he would train up people over a number of months in order to be perform that that operation now they couldn't do anything else but what they mm. could do they could do very well and that, to me, I thought was an extremely interesting model. And the idea that you could have um, – look, I, I, don't, I don't know how many sort of nurses you know that my um, experience of nurses is there's a lot of things that they do that they know how to do that the – they can't do because the doctors are the ones that, in quotes, are the ones that are allowed to do it, and yes. they know how to, how to do it. So, yeah. I think there's a lot of room there. But uh, that was a long circle round to your question of death by committee, and that uh, there was an, a Yahoo article that said the Royal Australian College of GPs president Nicole Higgins. This is speaking on the uh, pharmacists and nurses being given these extra uh, abilities, welcome the changes, which she said would enable GPs to keep practices open for longer hours. But the doctor warned expanding the role of pharmacists to deliver medicine and vaccines for children over five must be approached warily. This is not about us versus them. In my editorialising, <laughs> when someone throws into a, this is not this, you've got to listen to it and think, well, probably is. This is not about us versus the them. The Royal Australian College of GPs is right behind GPs working hand in hand, hand in glove with a range of allied health professionals, including pharmacists. And we believe they should be supported. And here's a sting in the tail. We believe they should be supported within general practice, she said. Yeah. So the that's the little right? sting, yeah. isn't it? So a good example, and this is something that uh, I don't think we've ever talked about on the podcast before, but companies like Coles and Woolworths would love to have a pharmacy in them. It's actually quite oh, unusual that, they? that all over the world, uh, for, for, you know, most Aussies have traveled, but for, for our listeners that don't know this, but uh, all over the world, when you go to the supermarket, there's often a pharmacy inside the supermarket, just like, you know, we have the deli and that now. Uh, and you'd give them your prescriptions, you do your shopping, and before you leave and pay, you go and pick up your scripts and you leave, right? It's very convenient, really, really good. Uh, a lot of people do this. In fact, I still do this myself because there's almost always a pharmacy right next to a supermarket. Yep. 
the reason that Coles and Woolworths don't have pharmacies in them is basically because of the lobbying from the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. And that's no, you know, telling me it's you're telling me it's bureaucracy and friends and money bu- and lobbying. Exactly, it's it's oh. it's, it's oh. we 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 call oh. it lobbying. Oh. Some of us call it bribery, but <laughs> the the applications uh, basically just will never go through. If you know what I mean. So this kind of smells of the same sort of thing where we're looking at the solution, but the bureaucracy and all the players are basically killing this before it can get off the ground just because they don't want nurses to do too many things. They don't want pharmacists to do too many things. Um, I did read a quote from a doctor uh, whilst researching this topic uh, about he didn't like the fact that pharmacists were even giving vaccines because in his eyes, if something went wrong, they're ill-equipped to handle it. And I sort of thought, yeah, but, you know, realistically, how often do, does someone have a severe allergic reaction to a vaccine and is not able to get to a hospital or, you know, emergency medical care very quickly? Yep. Um, yep, exactly. You know, I, I sort of looked at it and went, yeah, that's all well and good. But remember... Um, as we spoke about the other week during the GP topic, what we found out is, uh, you know, a lot of GPs are basically wasting their time with small, crappy little things. Uh, giving vaccines is a good example. You don't need a doctorate to give someone a vaccine. Um, I, I, I would, I would, I would be very, very confident that while I couldn't treat an adverse vaccine reaction, I could give. A hundred people uh, a, a vaccine, an intramuscular uh, vaccination shot, without any issue whatsoever. Yeah, I'd agree. It's not exactly rocket science, no. you know. It, it, it's it's pretty simple of a task, realistically. Um, and we saw that during the pandemic that we set up clinics damn near everywhere to mass vaccinate people. And I can tell you what, 99% of the people that were giving those injections are not doctors. A lot of them aren't even nurses. They were specifically trained in this specific specific thing, just like your Fred Hollows example, to do it because there there was an international health crisis. And all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) we can do it. We've seen it happen. And now all of a sudden it's, oh, no, they can't do that. You know, we need, no, doctors need to do these things. And I think, you know, yep. they're sort of their own worst enemy in that way where they uh, don't want certain things to happen because they want to, they're trying to protect their own, uh, their own, I don't know, their own industry, I guess. Um, they don't yep. want to lose business. And like, I, I get it, but at the end of the day, I think this is where the government needs to look at it and say, no, you know, we, we, we have these skilled people, we, we can do these things, um, and we need to... I think there's a lot of things that, that a registered nurse um, could actually provide to you in a medical setting like uh, doctor surgery or 
maybe even like a pharmacy or something like that. If the pharmacies got more yep. well-equipped, maybe they became slightly larger and they had, a, you know, a slightly more medical-type facility in there. I think there's a lot of things that they could do. And this works elsewhere in the world um, yeah. where they have sort of like mini hospitals or, or like, a, like a triage point in yep. suburbia and that kind of stuff. Um, I think we could do that and it would take a lot of pressure off the hospital system. Yeah, look, I, I think so too, and I think it's a reasonable reasonable thing to do, and it's not uh, hu as humans we're very good at monkey see monkey do. You see it a number, you see it a number of times, and you think, okay, I get it. Then when things don't go well, you call the you, you call the person who knows a, a bit more. But if you know, let's say even if if ninety percent. And that's allowing for you know ten out of a hundred not going well. If ninety percent go well, and the doctor or the skilled person or the the senior nurse or the senior pharmacist has to attend to uh, only ten percent of the patients, it's a massive saving on the health system as a, a whole if you can provide that service to the majority of patients. Exactly. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. And and you could even argue this. Um, so, Prime Minister Albanese, because you are listening, this is this is a free one for you. Um, you could even you could even position this uh, as it's opening up uh, after hours uh, work for doctors outside of their practice yep. uh, to come and work in a supervisory type role um actually a really good example is a, a very good friend of mine uh works at a local hospital um and he he was telling me that he was looking at doing the uh plaster course to do like casts and things like that okay and i was like oh that's quite interesting and he said yeah it's um Currently in the local hospital, it's, I think they call them wardies or something like that. They're not nurses. They're not medically trained, but they do a lot of things like they'll move patients around and things like that in the hospital. They do a lot of the other stuff that traditionally nurses would do, but they're not necessarily medical type things. I mean, everything in a hospital is medical, but you know what I mean. Sure. Um and this was quite an interesting one to me because I always thought that that was probably a nurse or something like that. But no, there's no specific reason that you need to be like a regist a a an actual nurse to put a plaster cast on. It's something that we can specifically train someone to do, and it it doesn't. It could be anyone really. Um, you don't, you, and you can free up those resources, those nurses, to go and do other things. So, yep. you know, ultimately, that's sort of what we're talking about. Maybe, you know. We've got a problem. We've got a shortage of doctors. Let's free up some of these jobs to other qualified, skilled people that can do them, and just we'll let them do them. You know. Um, yep. yep. Exactly. Ex ex exactly right. Let the let the people who have the expert knowledge deal with the edge cases, and the middle uh, cases can be dealt with by people who have generalized knowledge. That to me seems reasonable. Yeah, because the system we have now isn't working. So the, the the Medical Association of Australia can dig their heels in as much as they want. Well, sorry, the the Australian Medical Association, I should say. Yep. Uh, but the reality is 
the current system isn't working. The, as we know from their report, uh, the the public health system's in the worst shape it's been for fifteen years. Yep. So. And, and, you know, I don't want to sit here and, and place blame on any government or anything like that because this isn't what this is about. And I and this is the other thing I don't want, and I, I haven't seen it yet, but and I'm not sure if there's rumblings or anything like that. I haven't really looked at the news today, but I don't want this to become a political issue because it doesn't need to be. This needs to just, we need to get this fixed. It sounds like they've, they're aware that there's a problem and, they're, you know, they're starting to look at solutions. But as we always say, Watch this space. So let's see how this story develops. That's true. That's true. I was just about to say, I do firmly place all the blame on the, on the government, both Liberal <laughs> and Labor. But you're quite right. Let's let's watch this space. <laughs> I'm sure we'll probably come. We'll circle back to this. That's another buzzword for you, because uh, next Tuesday is when the budget will be released. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what time. It's quite often in the afternoons they release the budget, so maybe we'll have to do a, a Wednesday recording or something like that, so we can do a bit of a a bit of a, a, a analysis of the budget. I yeah. think. Well, we'll yeah, see. We it, may, it may be a very boring budget and not worth doing, but we'll have to we'll have to look. Uh, dear listener, if you would like us to go through the budget, uh, please let us know on r slash Australian, and we will fulfil your every wish. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of fulfilling wishes, what happened this week in Australian history? All right, this week in Australian history, 30th of April to 6th of, of May. Got one that I want to go into a little bit of detail, So we'll, uh, and that will be the Pilbara strike. Uh, but ah, the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other ones were. I thought you were going to uh, say Expo Expo eighty eight, and I was like, well, <laughs> I, I, look, I I had. In fact, where have we got? Did I put that note down? No, I haven't got it written uh, down here. Thirtieth of notes. April. But there was there was a note there was a, a a note yes yes thirtieth April but no the uh, the note I was referring to was how many times we go into these uh, this week in Australian history and there's just so many interesting stories that you there we go like so many of the historical entries we have in this segment this is a story with a lot of depth we <laughs> exactly. seem to strike that so yeah. Uh, April 30th, 1915, during the Gallipoli campaign, HMAS AE2, a Royal Australian Navy submarine, is sunk by enemy shell fire in the Sea of Marmara in present-day Turkey. Or, oh, I can't, what, what's, the, what's the current pronunciation? Turkey? Or, I, I can't no, it's still, it's still Turkey. I think it's... This is my understanding. And again, yep. listen, if I am wrong, please correct me. I believe it's still pronounced Turkey, but it's spelt differently. Ah, okay. Okay. So, yeah, in present day talk. Because the bird is named after the country. That's a whole thing we can we can talk about at a different time. But, yeah, so they, now the they're trying to get away from this country. Part. Yeah, it, and a lot of racism, basically. Oh, 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 okay. All right. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there, there we go. Um, 1988, as you uh, jump to World Expo 88. Gosh, I remember that. 
World Expo 88, part of the Australian Bicentenary, opens in Brisbane, Queensland. Uh, I didn't go to it. I heard of it. Did Did you go to it at all or have any uh, No, but because the expo grounds are in modern-day South Bank, so for our listeners that have been to brisbane and you've been to south bank or have watched bluey because bluey's been to south bank several times in brisbane um it's a fantastic area all of that area was developed for expo 88 so the legacy of expo 88 very much lives on was it in brisbane yeah and and Ah. the south bank area of brisbane hands down it's like the best one of i shouldn't say the best but one of the best parts of brisbane city um especially because it's right across from the CBD and everything like that. So, um, and all of that was, was, that was the site of Expo 88. So I'm very grateful for Expo 88 because of it. Didn't know that. Didn't know. Yeah. I, I have, well, the couple of times I've been to Brisbane, I have uh, been in that area and enjoyed that. And I think that's uh, later on in the year, which I'll, I'll, I'll mention. I'm going up for a, uh, it's, it's an opera up there in that region. Oh, cool. So, yeah, yeah. So at the, the um, Tupac, uh, the Queensland Performing Arts Centre, which oh, is yes, of, yep. which is part of South Bank, which was built for Expo Eighty Eight. So there yeah. you go. And Tupac is fantastic. The yeah. Ring. So yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you a bit of a blurb when I uh, when, when I get up there, listeners, in uh, De- December of this year. Cool. Uh, continuing with April 30th, 2003, Chinese-born stockbroker Rene Rivkin is found guilty of insider trading in relation to a purchase of 50,000 shares in Qantas, the National Airline of Australia. And I think with all the corruption that goes on, 50,000 mm. shares in Qantas seems a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit minute. However, he did. He was, and um, that's the, that's the story there. 2006, miners Brent Webb and Todd Russell are found alive five days after a mine collapse in Beaconsfield, Tasmania. Oh, oh I distinctly remember this. This, this <laughs> a captured, few nightmares here. Yeah. Oh, this captured, I think, not just the country. I think parts of the world were were obsessed with this Ooh. story. At the time, um, this yeah, this was. I think it was. A, it was a couple of weeks where everyone was just like, yep. just everything that ever happened. You know, it was broadcast, and there were cameras set up, and all sorts. Like it was just everywhere, and and it, you know, re- it ended in a in a reasonably good ending. Obviously, you know, quite a few guys did Thank die, God. but but the um, Webb and Russell made it out, and. What a fantastic! Uh, I can still distinctly re- like recall them getting up, getting out, and I remember they tagged Ooh. out still. Um, and I think I I want to say Koshi was there, and I think oh. they, I think because he he did a bit of a big broadcast of it and that kind of stuff as well. So um, yeah, no big big thing. Yeah, I can't believe that was two thousand and six. Oh, no, look, I don't remember Koshi, but I do remember that night. <laughs> look, if this, if this, that's 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 one of my very uncomfortable things being being caught in oh, you know, yeah. a, a cave collapsing and that. It's I'm not particularly claustrophobic, but uh, 
the the idea of the the earth closing in on me is it's not a good one anyway for, for people who are triggered by that we won't dwell on it um may 1st 1770 having died of tuberculosis on april 30th uh, Forby Sutherland is buried at Cornell, New South Wales, becoming the first British subject buried in Australia. Somewhat ignominious honour, but there you go. It was Forby yeah. Sutherland. Yeah. I wouldn't. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't want to win that prize. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess someone someone had to be the first, right? Someone yeah. had to be. Yeah, and, and yeah. inevitably. Uh, May 1st, 1891, the first May Day marches in Australia are held at uh, Barcaldine in, or Barcaldine? How do you pronounce that in Queensland? Um, I don't know. Oh, okay. It held at Barcaldine, Queensland. That's exactly how you pronounce it. Barcaldine, <laughs> Queensland, in support of a Shearer's strike. And 1946 on May 1st, this is the one that I, I thought was uh, a little bit more depth. The uh, Pilbara strike commences with 800 Aboriginal pastoral workers walking off stations in the Pilbara and Kimberley regions of uh, West Australia because it was a lot of, lot of Aboriginal workers in there. So there was just this little bit that I thought was interesting. The 1946 Pilbara strike was a landmark strike by Indigenous Australian pastoral workers in the Pilbara region of Western Australia for human rights recognition, payment of fair wages and working conditions. The strike involved at least 800 Aboriginal pastoral workers walking off the large pastoral stations in the Pilbara on 1st of May 1946 and from employment in the two major towns of Port Hedland and Marble Bar. The strike did not end until August 1949, and even then, wow. yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow, wow is exactly what I thought as well. That's I, I, over three years. Yep, 100%. I, I thought exactly the same thing. Um. And even then, many Indigenous Australians refused to go back and work, uh, go back and work for the white station owners. Uh, it is regarded as the first industrial strike by Aboriginal people since colonisation, one of the, uh, if not longest, industrial strikes in Australia, and a landmark in Indigenous Australians fighting for their human, cultural rights, and native title. Uh, this was the one that I said, like so many of the historical entries in the segment, this is a story with a lot of depth. Look, who knows, we might go into this in another one, but there was, uh, if, if you're interested in it, I suggest you, you look up. It was, it, it was a, a larger story than um, what I expected, but uh, grabbing at a couple of paragraphs from, in this case, the Wikipedia entry, Wages and conditions were eventually won by the strikers on uh, the stations Mount Edgar and Limestone. These two became a standard. <laughs> this is the bit that I love. These two became a standard with the strikers declaring that any station requiring labour would have to be equal to or better than the rates of pay and conditions operating on these two. Uh, by August 1949, the Siemens Union had agreed to black, bland, black ban wool from stations in the Pilbara onto ships for export. On the third day after the ban had been applied, 
Uh, McLeod was told by a government representative that the strikers' demands would be met if the ban was lifted. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. Weeks after the strike ended and the ban was lifted, the government denied making any such agreement. Oh, what? That was a, oh. yeah, that was a bit of a low act. So, because I I was reading this and I was thinking, how is this going to end? I thought, yeah. ah, they were shafted. What a surprise! What a surprise! I do know one. I, I don't. I didn't know specifically about this event. Um, but one thing I did, I was aware of, and I know this didn't just happen in, in Western Australia, but I think in, in quite probably all over Australia, actually, uh, was a lot of Aboriginal workers were illiterate, um, unfortunately. And that was very much taken advantage of by their generally white employers um, because they couldn't read and write. They didn't necessarily know how much they were to be paid or should be paid. They were, they were ignorant of their workers' rights and things like that as well. And these guys completely took advantage of that um, and would, would basically lie about how much money they owed them and all this sort of stuff. It was just horrendous. Um, I'm sure, unfortunately, stuff like this still goes on today. Um, yep, yep. Which is terrible, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's rip through the last last few of them. May 2nd, 1977, neurophysiologist Sir John Eccles, the winner of the 1963 Nobel Prize for Edison, for Edison, for medicine, dies at his home in Tenero Contra, Switzerland. Uh, May 3rd, 1804, in the Australian Frontiers Wars, Frontier Wars, Aborigines attacked the newly established settlement at Risdon Cove in what is now Tasmania. 1840, New Zealand is officially proclaimed a separate colony from New South Wales. So that was that was eighteen forty. Interesting, yeah, yeah, interesting. Which we, I mean, we sort of briefly touched on this during yep. uh, the episode on. Uh, Secession and and federation mm. and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think in the New South Wales Constitution, I'm pretty sure New Zealand is, is listed in there. Um, I don't think it's ever been removed from the New South Wales Constitution, but uh, okay, that's it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a funny. Uh, in terms of how we perceive it in our modern day age, it's a funny concept that New South Wales could have any relation whatsoever to New Zealand. But in yeah. terms, yeah, in terms of yeah. what was originally set up, it was a, a, a fairly reasonable um, association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very weird to think about now. Um, yep, I think I think it always would have happened because New Zealand culturally is very it's similar but very different at the same time you know um i don't think it ever would have really worked long term to have new zealand uh run from australia i think it, they would have always no. seek um sought independence and, and rightfully so um but yeah oh we could cool. have had our own civil war and it could have been a whole new war. <laughs> well yeah that would have, uh, that's right, yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a novel out there about it if, uh, <laughs> i'm sure uh, yeah. yeah that's a freebie <laughs> that's a, yeah. <laughs> exactly that's a freebie 
<laughs> I mean, to be fair, they don't have much of a defence force. So, I mean, they're ripe for the taking. Uh, well, Prime Minister Albanese, as we know, you're listening. Uh, you know, maybe just think about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, work out a way to, to shoot both of their soldiers. Uh, May, <laughs> <laughs> May 4th, 1826, English-born bushranger Matthew Brady and Kennibal John Jeffries. T- sorry, Thomas Jeffries. I didn't look on look into uh, why he was called Kennibal Thomas Jeffries. However, I'm expecting there would have been a self-explanatory explanation. Uh, hanged at the Campbell Street Jail in uh, Hobart, Van Diemen's Land. 1912, the play On Our Selection, written by Bert Bailey and Edmund Duggan and based on the work of Steel Rudd, is first performed in Sydney. So for the uh, thespians amongst us, On Our Selection is a well-known play. 1942, the five-day Battle of the Coral Sea, fought between the Imperial Japanese Navy and Allied Naval and Air Forces commences in the Coral Sea between Australia and the Solomon Islands. And we Uh, won. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Pretty full on. Yeah, well, God, again, there might be another one. There's a lot of World War II history around, in and around Australia, um, especially especially North, North Queensland so, um, mm. and Papua New Guinea, which, of course, was part of Australia at the time, or governed by Australia, I should say, at least. So, um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Fair bit of that. May 5th, 1865, uh, fold, uh, 1865, Bush Ranger Ben Hall. And the reason I said fold is because I always think of a bold Ben Hall, the Bush Ranger, um, is ambushed and shot dead by police near Gubang Creek, New South Wales. And he's... Uh, the, He's buried in the uh, well. He's buried in the same cemetery that some of my family and my brother is uh, is buried in up at at Forbes. It's always been something that. Uh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Seeing that you know the gravesite of bold bold Ben Hall, so uh, <laughs> something that sticks <laughs> sticks in my mind uh, sticks in my mind. Uh, so, eighteen sixty five. No, it was that long ago. Yeah. That just happens to be where he is. Uh, 1906, the first electric trams begin operations in Melbourne with the opening of a service from St Kilda to Brighton. And 1998, four Royal Australian uh, this Royal Australian Navy sailors die from carbon monoxide poisoning after a fire in HMAS West Australia. Now remember that one. You'd, it probably would have had significance for you. Yeah, the um, a lot of guys I served with knew, like I didn't know anyone. This was way before I, I went in, into the Navy. But um, this this was and still is like a lingering uh, disaster in, in the Royal Australian Navy because it never, it never really should have happened. But in, interestingly enough, like that wasn't – after this, the West Australia – the ship itself was reasonably fine. Like it didn't, it continued on. Um, I think it was decommissioned in like 2006, something like that. Yeah, okay. um, so just, just a 
just a terrible, terrible thing that happened. You know, it's 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 one of those things that never should have happened, and it probably never will happen again because it happened. If you know what I mean, like yep. learn from learn from our mistakes and and changed how we how we do things and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, just. A, a, a freak accident, I guess. It, it was because it, it was a, like a like a fuel hose burst in the engine room, or split, or or something, um, and fuel went everywhere. And of course, this hot machinery in an engine room, um, and it just it just went. So um, I believe since then, how. The Royal Australian Navy conducts like maintenance and things like that, and yep. flexible hoses aren't crappy anymore and stuff like that. So lots of things changed. It was a it was a whole systematic change as a result of it. So, um, yeah. it, unlike uh, unlike the US military, a lot of like heavy maintenance on board naval ships in Australia are done by civilian contractors. A lot of the civilian contractors are old sailors, uh, but not all of them. Uh, and of course, as we know, okay. when when you have uh, civilian contractors from companies like Talus, uh, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, you know, all these big, big defense contractors. Um, yep. Of course, they're contracted on the basis that they do it the fastest and the cheapest, and sometimes that involves dodgy equipment, dodgy uh, products, and unfortunately, a, a, a few sailors paid the price for that. So, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the cost cutting is not always worth the savings. No, this was also a weird. I think like this was a weird time in the ADF as well between the ending of Vietnam and sort of the start of the war on terror, the the Australian Defence Force, especially the, the Australian Navy, uh, like their funding was just gutted. Like there wasn't, you know, the, the you didn't specifically have a role to fulfil like you do in, in a wartime environment. Um, so it's very easy for maintenance and training and stuff like that to kind of slip. And I think that's, really sort of what happened um and you know i'm not specifically blaming anyone or anything like that i think it's just one of those systematic things that kind of just unravels very slowly and over time and and uh uh as a result we had an accident that killed a few sailors which is horrendous um but yeah Our final one on May 6th is in 1910. George V becomes King of the United Kingdom and the British Dominions, including Australia, after the death of his father, Edward VII, in London. And at his coronation speech, reputedly, he said, Crikey, I could go for X. <laughs> 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 ah, that was that was really good. That caught me off guard. Um, I was going to say we're we're uh, we're having another coronation, I believe. Yeah, we are very soon. Very soon, actually. Is it days? I think it's on May the sixth as well. Yeah, it is. It's on Saturday, so that's May the sixth. So there you go. That's probably not ah, a coincidence. There you go. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I imagine that's not a coincidence. Um, so there we go. Next year we'll have another one down to the list. So, but you're exactly you're exactly right. But I have to start by saying uh, I'm actually terribly disappointed, my dear listeners. Last week on the podcast, I cracked open a beer to use, I guess, the sound effect. Uh, but when I listened to the playback earlier this week, it did not come through. Like, it was barely audible. It was not. It was very underwhelming. And I'm very upset about the whole thing, actually. Um, but anyway, I digress. Here's the, qu- the question this week. So, I'm not going to repeat it. I'm not going to crack another beer just for it to fail miserably. So, uh, Oh, we can we can all we can always just like, dub it in. You can just get it right <laughs> up to the mic, and I'll I'll crank it up. And uh, in in fact, we might we might even do that. I'll get you to uh, here. We go talk talking behind the scenes. However, I might get you to crack one, throw it up, and we can use that as a sound effect that we dub in as if we'd heard it miraculously on the uh, the episode and people who are listening to this episode will understand that it's it's just a, a trick of audio but future listeners will think isn't that amazing magic. they've captured it <laughs> movie magic audible yeah. magic yeah. Um, so this week's question is what is Australia's most populous city other than a state capital? Oh, so what is Australia's most populous city other than a state capital? Yep. Wow. Whoa. And I, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a hint. I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Hey, actually, hang, ex- hang on, hang on. Before, before you give me a hint, let me get... My guess is going to be orange in New South Wales. No. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, give me a hit then. Um the Forex answer, the bottle cap answer. I looked at this and went, I don't think that's right. And I looked at it and I can tell you what, it's not right, the answer that's written on there. Oh. So you can give me the Forex answer, or you can give me the true answer, and you'll get points for either of them. But it's not Orange, New South Wales. Ah, uh, well, if it's not a state capital, that might be a trick. Not a, not a state capital. Cam- I'd have to go Canberra because that's a territorial no, that, well, that, capital. Yeah, that, no, that still counts. So no state and territory. Oh, okay. No, oh, shoot. Okay. So uh, Darwin, Canberra, they're all out. Wow. Um, wow. That's. So you can't do. So you, it's. This is. Okay. What's the most populated city other than Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, yeah. Perth, Adelaide, the ACT, Hobart, or Darwin? And it can't be like, you know, th- these are the greater metro areas. So it's not like Parramatta or something like that. You know, it's, it's yeah. the quote unquote Sydney greater area. Is excluded. So, so think it could, of it could be it could be Gosford, Wollongong, or Newcastle, for example. It could. It could. Yeah. It very might be one of those. Oh, okay. So right. It could be a regional city. Is it? Is basically. it Newcastle? Okay, that's what the that's what the four X gold bottle top. Well, says. they would lie to us. 
So there we but go. That's, that's a win. That's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually wrong. So it was obviously the time of printing on the Forex bottle top. But I actually looked into this because I was like, I don't think that's right. So I went in and looked into this. Um, Newcastle has a population of uh, so these figures these population numbers are as of 2021 because we're a couple of years out of date uh so you know take a take a pinch of salt with these figures but uh newcastle had a population of five hundred and nine thousand people and some change um uh however with seven hundred and six thousand people the actual most populated city outside of the state and territory capitals is the Gold Coast, uh, which includes parts of Tweed's Heads because they're basically the same city. Um, and they've got 706,000 people. And that's this has actually been the case like that uh, the Gold Coast slash Tweed Heads area has been more popular more populated from at least 2011, 2010. Uh, I didn't want, really want to go back too far to oh. find out exactly when. So that Forex bottle top is significantly out of date. Um, I, wouldn't I, have even picked the Gold Coast, I wouldn't have even picked Gold Coast as a city. When you come up to Brisbane, you need to go to the Gold Coast. It's huge. It's been a little while since I've been to the Gold Coast, but for, for some Reason and, and possibly its nomenclature, its 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 name, Gold Coast. I've thought of that as an area rather than a specific city. Yeah, no, there. So there is actual the city of of the Gold Coast. You know, it's not just oh. like a suburb, a suburb or anything like that. Didn't know that. Uh, interestingly enough, so Gold Coast was the sixth most populated city in in Australia, um, or or we should say like geographical region you know yep um because a lot of like the gold coast as a city is reasonably spread out so i can understand why you'd sort of be like uh, is that a city um but if we're talking to like uh what do they call them lgas local government areas yeah. uh Newcastle was number seven as i said with with five hundred nine thousand. Yeah. you know i'm rounding these these to the nearest yeah, sure, thousand sure. sort of thing uh so that was number seven number eight is canberra at 482,000, so it's quite significantly less. So the Gold Coast Tweed Heads area is almost double the size of Canberra. Uh, Quickly followed by the Gold, uh, sorry, the Sunshine Coast, which is 355,000 people. So either side of Brisbane, basically everybody wants to live. New South Wales Central Coast is number 10, and then we sort of Geelong, um, Wollongong is 305, Geelong is 289, and then Hobart at number 13 below Geelong at 203,000. Um, mm. And then it sort of goes on. Darwin is the least populated capital city of, I know it's a territory, but state capital, uh, number 17 most populated in Australia with 135,000 people. So, wow. Darwin is really small, which I feel like, you know, we sort of know, but because it's it is a it is a capital city, we sort of think it's, you know, we expect it to be bigger than it is, but it's not. That's a lot I, I that's a lot smaller than what I would have guessed. If you'd have asked me to guess Darwin, I would have put it around 230. Yeah. No, I 
I'm, I'm the same. I was really shocked by these figures. And again, dear listeners, please take these figures with uh, you know a grain of salt because I'm sure they, they are a couple of years out of date and I'm sure things have changed as we know with the pandemic we've had a bit of an exodus from from the cities and regional areas have grown quite quickly over the last couple of years um what i did find interesting though is the populations of melbourne so melbourne is the most populated city in australia with 4.8 million people uh and sydney is not far, but there's like 20,000 people difference between Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah. So yeah. not a lot of difference there, though. Sydney, I think, will be very upset that they've lost the top spot a few years ago. Um, yeah. Between Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Perth, over half the population of Australia live in those four cities. Wow. So that's that's wild, the fact that in four, four metro yep. areas, yep. half... Half of Australians live, and the vast majority of them are in Sydney, Melbourne. Yep, because Brisbane only has a population of of two and a half million people, with Perth not far behind with two point one. So yeah, Uh, so if you are listening and you're not from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, or Perth, we'd love to hear from you on the R slash Australian subreddit. How how regional and forgotten state capitals uh or smaller state capitals i should say tell us why do you like living in the regions uh as opposed to one of the big big the big smoke um or have you moved from the big smoke uh from from the one of the big four and have moved into a more regional area i i also love those stories um i know a lot of people that have done that and it's always interesting to to hear their motivations so um so on that thank you so much for joining us for another australia talks the official podcast of the r slash australian subreddit if you have any feedback or suggestions or for topics please get in touch with us on the r slash australian subreddit or email us at australian subreddit at proton.me otherwise join us next week for another episode of australia talks and remember at r slash australian we are australian thank you so much see you later dk thanks very much see ya (laughs) enjoy your steak I will.